Sometimes some cops bring their own racism to the job. Nobody disputes that. Racism can appear in any line of work, so why be surprised when some cops also are exposed as racially biased? But that is a different thing from saying that policing in general, policing as broadly practiced in the U.S., is broadly guilty of racism on a daily and routine basis. That charge has been made, it has been made often, that it's not just about a few bad apples, but that race determines not only who gets to talk his or her way out of a parking ticket, but much more importantly, who gets stopped, who gets searched, and most critically, who gets shot by the cops in an incident, as in those disturbing videos that keep on surfacing. Sorting out the truth of this has not been an easy discussion, but it's one that should not be avoided. So we are going to have it, we hope, in the form of the kind of intelligent and, again, we hope, civil debate That is the goal of Intelligence Squared U.S., so let's do it. Yes or no to this statement, policing is racially biased. I'm John Donvan, and I stand between two teams of two experts in this topic who will argue for and against the motion, policing is racially biased. As always, our debate will go in three rounds, and then our audience here at the Kaufman Music Center in New York City will vote to choose the winner, and as always, only one side wins. Okay, what we want to do, and I see our regulars are already going for it, is have you register your opening vote on this. If you go to the keypad that's attached to your seat, we want to know your view on this motion as you come in off the street. The motion, policing is racially biased. If you agree with this motion, push number one. And if you disagree, push number two. And if you're undecided, push number three. You can ignore the other keys. They're not live. And you can also correct yourself If you happen to uh, have made a mistake, um, just repress the button and it'll lock in your last vote. I want to ask also if we can put our Twitter information up on the screen as well for those of you who are tweeting. Um, As a rule, uh, we ask, uh, like the airlines used to, that you turn off your phones before the flight. Um, So as a rule, if you're not going to be using your phone to tweet, we'd like to have you turn it off so that you don't have a phone call in the middle of the debate and have that you be that person. Um, So, But if you're tweeting, our handle is at IQ2US and our hashtag is IQ2US Live. We're delighted to have you tweet. We take them seriously. We follow them through the debate, and sometimes we take questions from our Twitter feed as well. Okay. It looks like everybody's completed the vote. Uh, Oh, I'm just being told by the person who tells me secret stuff in my ear that we need to vote again. I'm not sure of the reason, but this is a chance to change your mind. Sorry? You're missing... Do we have an extra? You know what? Why don't you go to another seat, vote, and come running back? Yeah, sure, I'll, I'll give you time. And remind me at the end that you have to do that again. But at the top row, there's a seat. and Make sure nobody else takes it after that. So, uh, when you vote, uh, apparently what happens is some people didn't uh, let lock out completely. A green light goes on when your vote is complete. So wait for that green light to come on. Oh, everybody's, yeah. You needed me to tell you that vital information. Sorry. Hold that button down until you see a green light come on. And nobody's seeing a green light come on. Nobody's seeing a green light come on? Are you seeing a light of a different color? Come on. Is it still the case? I'm not there. 
is it still the case that the green light's not on? Now it's working. No, it's not working. Okay. You have a red light. I just saw a red light. Dana? We're good to go? No, we're not good to go. Russian hacking. Yes, there it is. A point for the foresight already. <laughs> All right, I have eye contact with our producer who's talking to people backstage who has more information than me. Yes? Wait. Wait, wait. If you have a red light, push 7G. Dan, why don't you just grab a mic and explain this? Because it's. We've registered most of your votes. For for those of you who saw a red light, go ahead and push 7G. Hold it down. You'll get a red light. Then go ahead and try to press 1, 2, or 3. Hold it down. You should then get a green light. Okay. How many of you did not get a green light? Put your hand up. It's everybody. It's everybody. Okay, bear with us one minute, please. Is, is Jill Stein here, by any chance? All right, we're going to try one more, one more time at this. So starting now, vote again. Unfortunately, I can't see what you're doing, so I'm not able to help you. Even, even if you get a red light, proceed. registering your votes even with the red light. We are getting them all now. We are getting your votes. It's just a little slower. Okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. We're good? We're going to move on. Let's meet our debaters. Our motion is this. Policing is racially biased. We have two debaters arguing for the motion. Please, let's welcome Gloria Brown Marshall. Hi, Gloria. 
And uh, Gloria, you, you qualify better than anyone on this stage for the compliment of Renaissance person. Uh, you teach law at John Jay. You're a journalist. You write scholarly books. You are a produced playwright. I think you've written seven or eight plays. Um, you used to argue in court. You're still a civil rights attorney. You used to argue for the Southern Poverty Law Center and the NAACP. Of all the hats that you've worn, what's your favorite? I like to say that there are branches on the same tree of justice. So I don't choose one. They're all branches on the same tree. All right. Thank you, Gloria. And tell us, please, who your partner is. My partner is Mark Terramup Claxton. <laughs> Mark Claxton. Hi, Mark. Welcome to Intelligence Squared. Thank you. Thank you. And, Mark, you were a cop. You were 20 years with the New York Police Department. You were in uniform. You also did plainclothes patrol. You did undercover narcotics investigation. And now you run political affairs for the Black Law Enforcement Alliance. Um, So, Toast, does being a cop change a person? Did it change you? Yeah, I think it's unavoidable when you're exposed to so much negativity throughout the course of a career. It's unavoidable. You're going to have some scar tissue. But... I like to think uh, that as a result of my experience in the police force that I have an increased sense of compassion and understanding and sensitivity to some of the issues that people face. Okay, and it will bring some insight to tonight's debate. Please welcome again the team arguing for the motion. And we have one team trying to persuade you to vote the other way. Policing is racially biased. They say vote no. First, let's welcome Heather McDonald. Hi, Heather. Welcome to Intelligence Squared. Heather, uh, you're a fellow at the Manhattan Institute, a contributing editor of City Journal. You've written a lot of books, including one called The War on Cops. Um, You started out interested in law. You graduated from Stanford Law. You clerked for the Ninth Circuit. uh, uh, Circuit. Uh, But now you have moved on from law. You're not practicing. You're what are called a public thinker. Oh, Sure, it says that on your business know. card. I'd like to be called that than some of the other names <laughs> yeah. I'm called. But. Heather McDonald, public thinker. Um, but you, you focus on this issue a lot of policing and criminal justice reform. So where did your interest in this policing topic come from? Well, I lived through the transformation of New York from a symbol of urban dysfunction to a hipster mecca and family-friendly tourist destination it was impossible not to become interested in policing since it drove that change. Okay, and tell us, please, who your partner is. The courtroom whiz kid, Harry Stern. Hi, Harry. Welcome to Intelligence Squared. And uh, Harry, you're a lawyer. You're a lawyer. Uh, You're with the firm of Reigns, Lucia, and Stern. Or is that Lucia and Stern? Um, Lucia, it's Italian. Lucia. Okay, I'm sorry. (laughs) Uh, You you, uh, represent police officers uh, in the state of California. But you, like your opponent, uh, Mark, you were a cop at one time. You got your degree in English literature from Berkeley. And you went to law school, but in between, you put in some time on the city of Berkeley police force. Same question. Though you weren't in it for as long as Mark, did you find that being a cop changed you? I did. You know, being a cop in Berkeley was a wild ride. I met Nobel laureates, uh, gang hitmen, and Joan Baez once stopped me during the middle of a riot to ask me what was going on. But the thing I found was uh, the takeaway is people are really basically the same, and they have an essential goodness, and I think as a cop. Mark and I probably learned that same lesson. All right. Optimistic note to start the evening. And uh, I just was told, well, I need to be repeated. Somebody just said something to me while I was talking. Harry, you need to lean into your mic from now on. Yes. Okay. <laughs> Could everyone hear Harry? Yeah? Okay. Good. Um, <laughs> okay. Everything's working very smoothly tonight. 
but we are going to get through it, and we're going to have a fantastic debate. Uh, I want to let you know that the vote that you just did for people who are new, we have you vote again at the end of the evening, a second time after you've heard the arguments, we ask you to vote again on these motions. And the way we determine victory is the difference between the first and the second vote. That's important. It's the difference. Whoever moves up the most in percentage points from the first to the second vote is declared our winner. Our debate goes in three rounds. Let's move on to round one. Round one, the motion is this, policing is racially biased. Each debater will speak in turn for six minutes. And up to speak first for the motion, policing is racially biased, Mark Claxton. He can make his way to the lectern. Mark is Director of Public Relations and Political Affairs for the Black Law Enforcement Alliance and a retired New York police detective. Ladies and gentlemen, Mark Claxton. Thank you. I really want to start out really quickly by uh, offering my condolences and recognizing the, a severe loss that we had in the law enforcement community, the death of uh, the legend, the hero, NYPD detective Stephen McDonald. And I wanted to uh, just start off by doing that and acknowledge his loss, tremendous loss for this city. I... All right, no clapping. Don't take away my time now. I want to start off because uh, we're talking about bias here. It's clear. I think we have to get a better understanding about uh, what it is specifically. What is bias? And I know we're talking about policing and racially biased. So I took it upon myself to bring out some definitions for us to to go over. So if you don't mind, I'd like to start off by reading Merriam-Webster's definition of bias. Included in that definition is a bent tendency and inclination or temperament or outlook especially a personal and sometimes unreasoned judgment. That's bias. I also refer to Black's Law Dictionary. The Black's Law Dictionary has bias listed as inclination, a bent, prepossession, a preconceived notion, a predisposition to decide a cause or an issue in a certain way. Most importantly, I want this last line in Black's definition is, this term is not synonymous with prejudice. I want us to remember that as we vote on this motion, and you should be voting yes on the motion, but remember, this term is not synonymous with prejudice. I suspect that through the course of this evening, what you're going to hear is a boatload of statistics, a truckload of data that will attempt to explain what Many of us already know what many of us have already not acknowledged and what many of us are working hard to prevent or at least address. And I think we just have to be honest about certain things. When you're talking about police bias, let's just be honest about it, because these numbers, this data that I suspect that you'll be hearing this evening, actual bias is not easily quantified. It's hard to really put numbers to specific and detailed bias. Without a historical context, without legal context, it becomes confusing. And that's why I'm honored tonight that Gloria, my debate partner, will be dealing and addressing with some of those historical and legal contextual issues because you can't just go nakedly into this conversation and expect to fully grasp and understand it. And if you deny bias, then you reject not only your common sense, but the experiences of many people like myself. A rejection of bias in policing is intellectually dishonest. 
And that's why you must vote yes to the question. You, if you don't vote yes to the question, what you do is reject the story that I have, the experience that I have, 20 years in the police department, in every unit in the police department, plainclothes, narcotics division, uniform patrol, observing what I observed, or perhaps my personal experiences being just shortly before going into the police academy, being stopped on Springfield Boulevard uh, into a, a, a checkpoint along with five other vehicles and five other black men. And we were all tossed out of our cars. Many of us physically, I was, thrown across the trunk of my car onto the street. It was later explained to me that I was stopped because they were looking for a black man in a dark car. That was one week before the academy. Or maybe perhaps the experience that my own son had 23 years later, less than a mile from the same location that it occurred with me. Or maybe... Less, less innocuous is this. If you remember, let's just give you an example of bias. In 2003, there was in the Prospect Park, the Philharmonic was playing. 2003, let me remind you, was a time when there was a severe and heavy crackdown. Zero tolerance in the communities of color across, this, across the city. No tolerance for drinking in public. No tolerance for loitering. No tolerance for this. Absolutely zero tolerance, yet still Mayor Bloomberg, then Mayor Bloomberg, sat in Prospect Park drinking his wine, laid out on a blanket, being offered all types of alcohol. He said, well, these people are different. There's not a problem with this, so the police enforcement isn't necessary. The police did nothing to those large crowds of wine and cheese drinkers in, in Prospect Park, so much to the point where I went the next week to Bryant Park with my little blanket and my wine and my cheese, and I drank very well. <laughs> Bias, no enforcement. Finally, I want to say, and I wanted to go into a stop and frisk data and information. I don't think I'll have an opportunity to, to but I wanted to tell you that the other victims of biased policing are those hardworking, diligent, dedicated law enforcement professionals who, because of biased policing, are put in positions and given quotas and false productivity standards, which place them in harm's way because they have increased contact and increased liability. It is not the everyday police officer who sets the tone and determines the level of bias in policing right now. It is the system, which I'm sure Professor Marshall will be going into historical context again. It is the system that places not only a certain population of citizens, but our police officers in increased harm's way. Vote yes for the truth. Vote yes on the motion. Thank you, Mark Laxton. And that motion again, policing is racially biased. And here to make his opening statement against the motion, here is Harry Stern. He is managing principal for the law firm Reigns, Lucia Stern, and a former Berkeley police officer. Ladies and gentlemen, Harry Stern. I want to start off by saying that this is an incredibly awkward experience talking about race like this. I kind of wish we had been given a, a bland and uncontroversial topic like religion or presidential politics. And this problem is compounded by the over-racism of the organizers of this event by pitting two black people against two white people. <laughs> now, Heather McDonald, she is extremely white. 
On the other hand, I thought I'd share with you a vignette from my time as a police officer. I was sent to a park to deal with a drunk, and when I was speaking to him, I could tell he was reading my name tag. He was staggering a little bit. His lips were moving, and he finally looked over to me and said, Stern, are you Jewish or white? (laughs) And I was taken aback. I didn't have an answer for him that was very good, so I arrested him. Just, just kidding, Professor. Um, but this highlights one of the truths about race and police work, and that's that it's complicated. It's fraught with confusion and misconceptions. Heather and I are going to explain to you, uh, in large part, it's going to be data-driven, because uh, when we try to extrapolate our own personal experiences, we often get lost in uh, stories and anecdotes that seem wildly important and emotional to us, but don't necessarily form the basis for promulgating policy. So Heather is going to focus on the data that proves conclusively that policing in America is not biased. She's also going to talk about how the uh, cry for safety in the black community really drives the police response. But let me tell you something. In one way, our argument can be summarized uh, as follows by an uncomfortable but inescapable truth, and here it is. Black people commit more crime per capita than other groups. It's not something that uh, I say cheerfully, but it's true. And the real problem with that statement is not only that it makes me personally uncomfortable and it's hard to say, but that people hear it as he's saying black people are bad or that black people are criminals. And the natural response to that is a reflexive reaction which puts it back on the police. It turns it around in a sense and says that can't be the case. In fact, it has to be the police that are racists, the police that are bad, and we need to find a solution to that. I liken this to the pre-Aristotelian scientists who had the theory of what uh, they called spontaneous generation, and that was the idea that uh, you could create mice out of thin air by putting down some old clothes and straw, and they magically appeared. And the corollary is that the people who are the proponents of this proposition feel that crime is created by the internal racism and bad thoughts of the police. This isn't the case. The, what I can tell you, which is indisputable, is that this discussion is driven in large part by the high-profile incidents that we've seen that are infamous and are often captured on video. I'm going to paraphrase Meryl Streep uh, in this regard and say to you that only reprobates enjoy seeing violence like uh, police action on TV, NFL games, and uh, what was it, MMA fights. And my partner and uh, mentor, the great trial lawyer, Mike Raines, puts it another way, and he says... Force, police use of force always looks ugly on videotapes. And this is a truth because none of us like to see violence in any form other than those reprobates that Meryl Streep and I like to talk about. But 
that's an incredibly poor vehicle for forming public policy because these are the extreme cases. In my remaining time, I'm going to suggest to you, inferentially, uh, there's proof that the proposition that policing is racist in America can be uh, shown by the wrong-headed and misguided consequences that are a result of that kind of thinking. First and foremost is the inevitable increase in crime. Because when policymakers are almost uh, myopically focused on uh, stop data, saying that it's disproportional and that it's not correlated to incidents of crime, the message to the police is stop doing police work. The nature, maybe the essence of police work, is suspicion. It's Dostoevsky's Inspector Porphyry figuring out by subtle observation that Raskolnikov was the suspect in the murders. It's the, uh, the state trooper who pulled over Timothy McVeigh uh, for a license uh, tab violation. It's the Italian police who stopped the Berlin uh, Christmas terrorist uh, for an ID check and wound up um, figuring out who he was. Harry Stern, I'm sorry your time is up for your opening statement. Thank you very much. Thank you. And a reminder of what's going on. We are halfway through the opening round of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate. I'm John Donvan. We have four debaters, two teams of two, fighting it out over this motion, Policing is Racially Biased. You have heard two of the opening statements, and now on to the third, debating for the motion and making her way now to the lectern, Gloria Brown Marshall. She is an associate professor of constitutional law at John Jay College, a civil rights attorney and author of Race, Law, and American Society. Gloria Brown Marshall. Policing is racially biased. We're not saying that every police officer operates with racial animus. We're saying generally policing is racially biased. And we support the motion with law, history, and practice. With law. Well, this city, New York City, was sued by Mr. Floyd. And in 2013, the federal court said policing in New York City is racially biased as well as the Justice Department of the United States said there were small as well as large police departments across the country in a finding that policing is racially biased. The United Nations said in 2013 in its report by the Human Rights Commission, policing is racially biased. By that point alone, we have won. (laughs) However, we also need to know this, that the police department made up of people who joined the police to help others are part of an extension of an American society that has race as that original sin. I'm going to go through 400 years of history in a minute and a half. 400 years of history, a minute and a half. 1607, Jamestown Colony is founded in Virginia. 1619, 20 Africans arrive in that colony. 1620, the Mayflower lands. We were here before the Mayflower. In the 1600s, you had hard-working people of African descent following the law, but then the laws changed, didn't they, and subjected them to chattel slavery. 
subjected to chattel slavery, and freedom becomes a crime. But then slavery is the law. Who enforces slavery? Militias, small groups, slave catchers. In our society, it's not the bobbies of London that start the police force. It is the slave patrols from which our police force then is founded. Those slave patrols, the bounty hunters, whose job it is to go find those runaway slaves and bring them back. 1865, the 13th Amendment abolishes slavery, but read your constitution. Slavery is abolished except as punishment for a crime. The words are there. Slavery is abolished except as punishment for a crime. So what happens between 1865 and World War II? The convict lease system. Criminal laws are put in place to criminalize black behavior so that they can then be used as laborers. Remember the movie, The Shawshank Redemption? The wardens then lease out the prison laborers. But then how do you get that labor? You create criminal laws that criminalize black behavior. You round them up. You do these things, and then you work them. Some of them work to death. Remember, from 1865 to World War II. Then we have Jim Crow segregation. Who then? enforces segregation, the criminal justice system, police officers. Over 4,000 people were lynched in this country, burned alive, castrated, throats cut, tortured. This happened right here in the United States. Was anybody arrested? No. Where were the police officers for African Americans? No people were arrested. And yet, We fight on, believing in our criminal justice system, even though the police officers are protecting those people. There are pictures of those crowds standing there with bodies hanging from trees. Where are the police? Then we get the civil rights movement, and there's movement forward. But then in 1968, the U.S. Supreme Court rules in Terry versus Ohio that the police have unprecedented authority to stop and frisk based on reasonable suspicion of imminent danger. But now as we go through time, we find the imminent danger part has dropped away. Police officers are stopping people, but they're stopping mostly brown and black people until by 2011, we have 600,000 people stopped by police, nearly 700,000 people, the majority of whom are black and brown. That's why the Floyd case in 2013 ruled that there was racial profiling practiced in this city. History, practice, law. You will hear that the police officers have no choice but to go into certain communities based on data. But can it be both? Data as well as racial bias? We say that it is both. You can have some data, but there is also racial bias. He said that black people commit more crimes. What kind of crimes? How many of you were smoking marijuana or your friends? That's a crime. How many of you are committing criminal acts and you know the police wouldn't stop you for it? What kind of crimes? When they talk about African Americans, they want to talk about violent crimes. And then they want to vilify those people who protest against our public servants we pay taxes for, who are abusing our rights. This country was born in protest. The Declaration of Independence was protest. We should not be vilifying those people, those citizens who say, we want the police to help us, not hurt us. Will someone Christian decide when the anti-Semitism is over? Will a man decide when there's no more sexism? I don't think so. 
there is racial bias in policing. Vote yes for the motion. Thank you. Thank you, Gloria Brown Marshall. And that motion again, policing is racially biased. And here to make her opening statement against the motion, Heather McDonald, the Thomas W. Fellow at the Manhattan Institute, contributing, city, uh, contributing editor of the City Journal and author of The War on Cops, Heather McDonald. Thank you. Thank you very much. Let me state some core principles. The police have an absolute obligation to treat everyone they encounter with courtesy and respect. Too often, cops develop hardened, obnoxious attitudes towards the public. Second, every police shooting of an innocent civilian is a stomach-churning tragedy. Tactical training has to work incessantly to prevent such calamities. Third, given this country's appalling history of racism and the use of police brutality to uphold slavery and segregation, police shootings of black men are particularly and understandably fraught. But however tragic the history of policing and race, patterns of policing today do not demonstrate police bias. Contemporary policing is data-driven. In order to save lives, cops go where people are most being victimized, and that is in minority neighborhoods. To understand policing, you first have to look at the facts of crime, however uncomfortable it may be to do so. I'm going to focus on fatal police shootings because that has been the focus as well of the Black Lives Matter movement. In 2015, cops killed 991 people, the vast majority armed and dangerous. 50% of the victims of police shootings were white, though you would never know it from the press coverage. Among the white victims of fatal police shootings was a 50-year-old in Tuscaloosa, Alabama, in a domestic violence incident who ran at the officer with a spoon and a 28-year-old driver in Des Moines, Iowa, who led the police on a car chase and then walked quickly towards the shooting officer. Now, had any of those victims been white, there's a good chance they would have become a national news story, been black, excuse me, but because they were white and didn't fit the national narrative about policing and race, they're completely unknown. Now, 26% of the victims of fatal police shootings in 2015 were black. Does that indicate police racism? After all, blacks are only 13% of the nation's population. It does not. Police shootings are going to occur where the police most frequently encounter violent and resisting suspects, and that is in also minority neighborhoods. Police activity, whether stops, arrests, or shootings, should be measured against crime, not population ratios. According to the Justice Department, Blacks die of homicide at six times the rate of whites and Hispanics combined. That's because blacks commit homicide at eight times the rate of whites and Hispanics combined, according to the Justice Department. In the 75 largest counties of the United States, which is where most of the population resides, blacks commit over 50% of all violent crime, though they're 15% of the population in those counties. These crime disparities are repeated in every big American city. Here in New York, blacks commit 75% of all shootings, though they're 23% of the population. How do we know that? That's what the victims of and witnesses to those shootings, who are overwhelmingly minority themselves, tell the police. Whites commit 
2% of all shootings, though they're 34% of the city's population. Add Hispanic shootings to black shootings, and you account for 98% of all shootings in New York City. This means that virtually every time the cops are called out to a shooting scene, they're being called to a minority neighborhood on behalf of minority victims and being given the description of a minority suspect. The cops don't wish that disparity. It's a reality forced upon them by the reality of crime. The other factor that drives police activity is community requests for assistance. Go to any police community meeting in a high-crime area, and you'll hear some version of the following requests. You arrest the drug dealers, and they're back on the corner the next day. There's teens hanging out in the street fighting. Whatever happened to truancy and loitering laws? There's trespassers in my lobby, smoking weed and selling drugs. I'm scared to go down to get my mail. The irony is this. If the police respond to these heartfelt requests for public order, they'll generate the racially disproportionate enforcement activity that can be used against them, however falsely, in a racial profiling lawsuit. But if they don't respond, they'll be ignoring the thousands of hardworking, law-abiding inner-city residents who beg the police for public order. In conclusion, Policing today is not racially biased. In fact, there is no government agency that is more dedicated to the proposition that black lives matter than the police. Thanks to data-driven, proactive policing, thousands of minority lives were saved over the last two decades that would have been lost had crime rates remained at their early 1990s levels. The police must work incessantly to improve their communications and tactical skills. And if an officer abuses his authority, he must be removed. But as long as crime and victimization remain so unevenly distributed throughout the population, police-civilian contacts will be too. That is not racism. It is reality. Thank you. Thank you, Heather McDonald. And that concludes round one of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate, where our motion is policing is racially biased. And now we move on to round two. And in round two, the debaters take questions from me and from you and our live audience, and they speak directly to one another. They can, from time to time, interrupt each other or question each other as well. Our motion is this. Policing is racially biased. We've heard the team arguing for the motion, Gloria Brown-Marshall and Mark Claxton, argue that to reject the argument that bias is happening in policing is intellectually dishonest. They're not saying that every cop is a racist, but that the system is, that this has been established in a number of, by a number of tribunals, by courts, by the United Nations, by investigations, by the Department of Justice, where racial profiling, they say, was absolutely established repeatedly. They tell this story as rooted in a heritage of black behavior being criminalized throughout the history of the United States. Um, and they say that... Um, they they preemptively say the opponents are going to throw a lot of numbers at you to disprove their argument, but they're saying the numbers can be true, and yet still the system can be racist. The team arguing against the motion, Heather McDonald and Harry Stern, indeed do come up with the argument that data matters a lot. They say that policing is not racially biased, but that it may seem so due to confusion and misconception based on stories and anecdotes that can be powerful but not absolutely comprehensive. They say the reality is that black people commit more crime per capita than other groups, 
proofs that that's where the crime is, that's where the police go, that's where the incidents happen. Um, they uh, are, are basically making the argument that if you step back and look at the numbers and look at the patterns, it's n- also true that while some cops may be racist, the system as a whole is not racist. So we're going to peel back some of these arguments and mix it up and go a little bit deeper on all of these topics. But I want to start by asking the team arguing against the motion to respond to your opponents um, uh, laying out the fact that there that Racial profiling has been established and documented by the Department of Justice. The report done on Ferguson, Missouri, a few years ago was damning in its portrayal of racism in an entire community. Uh, they talk about the UN, et cetera. What about those cases as evidence? Where do you, how do you place those? I'll take it Heather McDonald first. Well, I don't necessarily view the UN as an expert on, on uh, American policing, And I think that some of those reports used a specious methodology for determining racial profiling. They inevitably use a population benchmark to evaluate policing. Uh, You can read every Justice Department report that's come out in the last eight years looking at police departments, and you will not find any discussion in those reports of crime. Again, policing today is data-driven, and it is not the police who are determining where to put their resources. It is where people are being victimized. You can go to a CompStat meeting in New York City. These are these high-intensity accountability sessions that the New York Police Department subjects itself to. They don't talk about race. They talk about who is being robbed, where where the drive-by shootings occurring, and what is our strategy for trying to respond to that. Okay, let's let Gloria Brown Marshall respond. I'm quite sure the police department is not going to go into a meeting and talk about race. They're not saying we're going to go after the black people. However, in the Floyd case, I was in the federal courtroom. Can you remind people very briefly the Floyd case for those who are The Floyd case is a case that was brought by an individual African-American male who was um, going into his home, and he was arrested by police, racially profiled by police, and he brought a suit. I want you to think about what a stop and frisk is. Think about the government touching you, holding you up to ridicule in the public, rubbing your legs, your arms, your head, your body, your back, your, your chest, and then making you stand there or making you lie down on the ground with your face in the, on the sidewalk or in the dirt. That's what racial profiling can lead to and stop and frisk, and that's the power police officers have. I want police officers to be safe. I have friends who are police officers, but there has been abuse, and the Floyd case that was decided in federal court indicated that there was not just based on disproportionality, but based on the facts of the case and the evidence given and a recording of police officers telling other police officers to go to certain communities and, I quote, make them understand that community does not belong to them, it belongs to us. Okay, let me bring it to Harry Stern. And again, your, your, your opponent's arguing with anecdotes, which you said at the beginning, not good enough. Well, it's not that it's not good enough. It's not that it's not their experience. And it's not that in some ways... Is it that uh, it's not real? It's or not compelling. That- Here's the, the fundamental issue. And you know, actually, the professor talked about Terry versus Ohio, which was the case that uh, set forth the standards that police officers are allowed to stop and frisk people based on a, a low standard of suspicion. And that case was a, really an outgrowth and just a reaffirm, reaffirmation of constitutional 
privileges, that, that uh, the Fourth Amendment only prohibits unreasonable searches. Let me tell you something. And I expect Mark to be uh, on my side on this one and come over to this side of the table. No. Um, Rachel, I w- I'd like him. I'd like you too, but not for the moment. The, Thank you. Uh, here's my point. Racial profiling is crappy police work. And here's what I mean by that. Uh, I worked, I had the privilege of working in predominantly black neighborhoods, and if I was going to stop every black person that I encountered, not only was it going to be a long um, and arduous day, I wouldn't get anything accomplished. So the idea that uh, racially profiling, stopping people just because of their race, constitutes good police work is hogwash, and that's not what cops are doing. But who's arguing that? Who's arguing that it's good policing? My my He's argument. He's arguing with himself. No. <laughs> All right. Let me let me let Mark jump in on that. No. But, yeah, I, I, I agree with my partner. He's arguing with himself, but I, I, <laughs> we'll get I, to that. I don't, I don't think one thing that uh, I think uh, we have to do, and, and and I attempted to do it in my definitions, is really stay as close uh, to the motion as possible, because I I fear that if we go deeper into is policing racist. We go in a different area and dimension. We can have that argument. We are, we are prepared to do that. But I think I want to make sure that the audience knows, the voting audience knows, that the, you know, the motion is, uh, is policing racially biased. Let's, let's be clear about something. Stop and frisk, and I think you know, it was mentioned, referred to the data on stop and frisk, specifically here in New York City. The numbers speak unbelievably for themselves, and they speak poorly about policing. And I agree with you. Uh, you know, racial profiling and policing is is crappy police work, and that's why it's important for us to understand that. In addition to you know citizen victims, it's the police officer who now has increased liability, more negative contact with people, a lack of confidence. We've lost the faith and confidence of so many people. Why? Because quotas and 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 de- and, and the the quest for data forces police officers to engage in contact that they normally would not engage in. It's a matter of survival, job survival uh, in, on many levels, and it's important for us to realize that we expose our brave men and women mm-hmm. to increased liability by engaging in racial profiling or biased policing. Heather McDonald. I'm sure that there were very bad stops being made during the high watermark of stop, question, and frisk in New York City. There's, I agree with Mark. There was a pressure to generate activity data that undoubtedly resulted in an overuse of stops. Nevertheless, let me first point out, the judge in the Floyd case was removed from the case afterwards by the, ninth, by the Second Circuit Court of Appeals for demonstrating violating the appearance of impartiality because she steered cases on stop, question, and frisk to her courtroom. She encouraged the, the filing of cases. So her disposition towards this issue is not exactly impartial. Let's look at but the data on stop, question, and frisk in that, case. That, that Mark says unequivocally shows that there was bias. 53% of all stops in New York City had a black subject. 9% had a white subject. I would like to ask my, the opposing team what they think the proper ratio should be. Given 
that blacks commit 75% of all shootings and 70% of all robberies. Again, according to victims and witnesses, this isn't the biased police talking. And whites commit less than 2% of all shootings and 5% of all robberies. What should stop rates look like? Again, the existing rates was 53% stops and nine for okay. blacks and let's, 9% let's let, for whites. Let's let Gloria answer the question. Should it be population-based? I'm going to say something that goes back to what Harry mentioned. You're back on my team? <laughs> no. <laughs> you said blacks commit more crimes. How are you defining crime? You've only focused on violent crimes, and that's a very small percentage of all crimes. When you start talking about burglary, when you start talking about assaults, when you start thinking about the fact that there are um, over 300 million people in this country, the majority of whom are white. So in order for you to be a part of this database, that means that a police officer has to not only encounter you, but decide to arrest you. And what happens is whites commit more crimes, but they are not arrested in the proportion in which they should be arrested. There are interactions with police officers that take place on a a myriad of occasions. But what we have at the same time is the police officer making a judgment call because policing is very subjective. You're going to decide, am I going to ruin the future of this teenager who's caught, you know, destroying public property or smoking marijuana? in the car, and those of you in this room know how many times you should have been arrested as a teen. Okay. <laughs> Heather McDonald. Oh, all right. Uh, Harry Stern. Harry Stern, take it. Professor, and as a matter of fact, my teenage son's in the room, so um, behave <laughs> for once. But, Professor, listen, this is why, in, you know, uh, some people might think that we're keep hearkening back to stale data, but this is why it's so important because it's really not susceptible to the kind of emotional arguments that, with all due respect, you're making. But, but let, let me, me talk. Can, can I talk can I, Harry, to you? Can I just I, um, take what I think Gloria was saying, which is that um, a lot of the crime statistics that you're talking about, which maybe all you have don't actually cover all of the crime, that a lot of things don't get reported, that they're reported disproportionately between communities of color and white communities. I think that's what her point is, and I, wanted, I think it's a valid point. I want to hear what you're saying about that. Okay, well... Uh, and, and I know it's hard to say, well, if we don't have the data, we don't have the data. Nevertheless, no, it's no, a no. I'm not. Point. I'm not actually going to say that. I'm going to throw back at both of you, frankly, really a common sense point, is I'm going to go out on a limb and estimate that... of homicides are reported, okay? There isn't any disparity between the suburbs and the cities or uh, farm communities about when people are getting murdered, they get reported. I'm going to go out on a limb and estimate that the vast majority of armed robberies and shootings and rapes are reported. Uh, On the fringes are things that we can all have, that we can all have. Okay, you didn't like that point. I'm sorry. (laughs) I think don't you take, lost them on all the rapes being reported. Don't, don't take it out against Heather. All right? You can, you can push uh, number 17C on me and a light will go off. But look, the vast majority of violent crimes are being reported regardless of the community. So this data is objective. I'm more familiar with what's going on in the Bay Area in Oakland, for example. 
28% African-American population in Oakland, 85% rate of committing violent crimes, the ones that I just mentioned. And there's really no walking back for that. In my concluding statements, I will throw out an olive branch and try to convince the audience, my family, and the other side uh, that I'm not the worst person in the world and tell you where I think we can find some common ground. But that's, those are the facts. All right, Mark Claxton. One thing for sure, Harry cracks me up. Um, but one thing, <laughs> what's clear is that I assure you that if we decided uh, starting tomorrow to make this area within 10 block, a 10 block radius of this area a special zone, and we decided to do zero, infor- zero tolerance enforcement, and we decided to, to increase. As, as, a, as a law enforcement agency, increase our activity in this 10-square block area, this would be the most criminal area in New York within a short period of time. Now, I, I agree, you know, and I think the point that, that we're missing is, or we have missed, and it's back and forth, and I think, John, you were touching on it, is that you know, my partner indicated that it's only certain crimes you look at to determine criminality. And, and, and people are very selective about what crimes they look at to, to determine who's more criminal, so to speak. They look at particular crimes at particular times. And that's, that's also the problem with the, like, for example, NYPD collection system. They only gather information on seven crimes. There are hundreds of other crimes in the books. They only tell you about seven and tell you crimes up or down or up. It's, it's, it's not accurate. And I, I suspect that's what's being done with here with, with, well, with me, the opposition. Let me, let me check with Heather. I actually didn't hear you say you're only speaking about violent crime, but are you? No, I'm not. But I don't, I don't, the NYPD collects a lot of crimes. They've got part two uh, UCRs as well. So it's not just they're looking at the seven serious violent felonies. But I don't know, again... Why are the police in certain communities to save lives? They don't determine these decisions. Why are they enforcing loitering laws in certain communities? Because that's what the public is asking them to do. If, if, if the public in, in this community said there's too many people hanging out on the corners fighting, why don't you do something about it? The cops would enforce the laws here. Policing is responsive as well as being data-driven. I don't know what but, but, basis... But, but Neil, why, why does that matter? Nail that point. Why does that matter? It matters because they are doing what the people in the community want them to do. When you have people that are scared to go into their lobby because of the trespassers... I, I spoke with an elderly cancer amputee in the Mount Hope section of the Bronx who said, please, Jesus, send more police, because the only time she felt safe was when the police were in her building lobby because it was otherwise colonized by youth. What are the police supposed to do when she's begging them to, to restore order there, ignore it because it would generate too much disproportionate data? There's shootings are not going on in other areas of the city. If They're not. The, yeah, the people me, that are being killed are let's, let's overwhelmingly... Look. Okay, John Jay College is located on 59th and 10th Avenue. Think about the fact that this used to be Hell's Kitchen, and now it's the Lincoln Center area. (laughs) 
There is a difference in services provided based on that. When I see young people leaving school, they are rambunctious. They are talking loud. They're having fun. They have all this energy. But then once you put a shade of color on them, it's a difference in policing. When those students are leaving this area in the Upper East Side, rambunctious, loud, using new curse words, yes, they're not seen as a threat. But then when you move it to Brooklyn, they are. That's what we're talking about when we're saying racial bias in policing. The difference in what you see, your perception. My other concern is this. When we talk about crime, no one's talking about that white serial killer. No one's talking about that white mass murderer. The the person who committed the most murders in this country as one human being, the Green River Killer, who killed over 48 women, and he can't remember the other 50. Gloria, how do you put numbers on the thing, that kind of ineffable thing that you're talking about, a suspicion, a passing moment, the, the fact that a white cop might call out a black kid for cursing in Brooklyn, but he wouldn't in Manhattan? How do you put numbers on that? Because your opponents are arguing you need, to, you need to nail this stuff down. It needs to be quantifiable. How do you quantify it? Well, one of the things that, you know, um, Harry and I talk about a little bit beforehand was this data collection. In order to collect the data, whenever there's an encounter with police, then it has to be, it has to be collected. It has to be written down in some way. So that means when you have that data, what's that, co- that interaction with the white teenager, my concern is, and, and it's, it's a concern that Harry raised before, the, the, the fear that officers are being used to put people in the system. That's a concern both of us share. When you have people of color being put in the system, being labeled in a way, being part of the overall data collection. But if you're encountering the, the, the making that determination when you encounter a white teenager that you decide to counsel instead of arrest but are you saying you should count those? That there should I be a way to count I think you're going it? to have to okay. in order for us to find out who the police is actually interacting with. We are, we're, I think we're going to have to write it. And, it's, and, it, and it disturbs me as much as it disturbs other people. But we can't have it, it only be written down by people, about people of color because that's then who Heather studies. Who's ever in the database? And then she then teases a number from that. Okay. And we leave out all those other white middle class and upper class kids and other okay. individuals Let's, who are not me, part of the study. Let me take study. your point then to Heather. Who I think what you're hearing from Gloria, she's saying actually that your data is biased or your data is produced by a system that is biased. And so the bias is already built in. Is that something as, as a social scientist that you're on top of or you're aware of it? Or she, or she touched on something that's a real problem. I don't think it's a problem. Again, as, as Harry said, homicides are the gold standard of crime data, and they, they show the same pattern as every other type of crime. That's not I don't, true. I don't know what, what the real theory is of why police officers would arbitrarily ignore uh, a group of, of white teens that are raising hell and go after the black teens. They are responding... They are responding to what they hear from the community. So when I was, I went to the 41st precinct in the South Bronx in June, and I heard people there say, there's hundreds of kids hanging out on the corner fighting. They're beating up on young girls. Why can't you do something about it? So if you're a police commander in that situation, what are you supposed to do? That's what they're hearing. They are not determining these tactics 
out of, on a vacuum. They are listening to the community. If there was that level of disorder elsewhere, that's what the cops would be doing. Let's take that point to Mark Claxton. So, so Heather is saying, again, she's saying that the cops are going where the crime is. They're going where they're being called to solve problems. That the behaviors that, 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 are, that require police action, which then will lead to interactions which may or may not be negative, are happening more often in communities of color than in white communities. Therefore, there's going to just be more stuff, for better or worse, in the, color, in the colors of community. That, that's, the th- that's the driving thing here. What about that? Well, first of all, I can tell you that Heather has really bought, bought the NYPD line hook and sinker. Boy, I tell you, we're <laughs> responding to community complaints, et cetera. I think that, I mean, that sounds great. I've seen them. Well, I did it for 20-something yeah. years. <laughs> so, <laughs> and I can tell you, and, and, and it sounds great, and I, and I understand why, because it just seem, would seem logical that, police action would be based on these actual complaints from the ministers and the community, et cetera. First off, if you've ever gone to these community meetings, there ain't a whole lot of people there. So you're not getting a lot of information. But Yeah, they're scared of the drug dealers. Let, let me just say this. You will find crime where you look for it. If you look for it there, you will find it. And if you collect data based on the decision that you made, the subjective decision that you made to look for it there, not based on community concerns or some old lady said this or some you know person said that it's not about that law but where you decided to consciously look for it and execute this new enforcement action you're going to find crime there so it sounds like we're having a chicken and an egg argument here actually we I, have I a shot spotter technology we have a shot spotter technology this is something that transcends people reporting crime Allow in new york to. it's a it's a machine that listens to shootings and it put pinpoints where the objective. shot came from the shots are happening in high crime areas, the police are trying to save lives. They believe that black lives matter. But have a, this is not based just on that point, police reporting here, or, or false. Here's a classic example of what I just said. You only getting shot, shot, what's, what's the name of this silly shot system? Shot spotter. Shot spotter information from locations you put the shot spotter equipment in. And, so and all of those locations, <laughs> all of them are in black communities. All of them. Okay. Am I right, Heather? So, so Wait, let me let me, Heather, let me let's, let's let your partner come in, oh, Harry please. Stern. Harry Stern. Listen, we got chicken and eggs, and I'm going to make an omelet <laughs> and circle back and explain this whole thing to you in a rational, practical way. And I promise not to tell too many more police stories. But here's the way it works: you can't explain away the statistics, the core statistics about the violent crimes. Okay, homicide reporting is 100 percent. Armed robbery is right up there. So by definition, uh, those are the factors you have to look at. And the other crimes we can. No, I just need to check your statement yes. on this. Why, by definition, are those the factors you have to look at? When your opponents are proposing that there are all kinds of other crimes, lower level, where where data isn't kept, et cetera. Why, by well, definition? Let me let me explain. Why does, why does violent crime actually drive your argument? Because violent crime is what matters, and violent crime, there are no reasonable policy debates or whether or not we should respond to armed robberies or whether uh, there's a difference between homicide reporting and investigation in the suburbs or in the city. Okay, so those are the things that aren't subjective. They're 100% objective. On the fringes are drug crimes and uh, quality of life crimes. But here's where those two things come together. 
Okay, the broken window theory, the stop and risk, the stop and frisk, uh, Mark would call it stop and risk, um, theory of fighting crime goes something like this. In order to combat the violence that no reasonable person is going to argue is a good thing, nobody's out there saying we'd like more homicides in our neighborhood, we want uh, more holdups. In order to combat those things, you go after quality of life crimes. So without one... There's, the, there's not the other. And that's a perfectly ras- rational police response to an outcry from a community, and frankly, it works. I want to take, we're going to go to audience questions in a second, but I want to take one more question from the previous discussion to Gloria Brown Marshall, which is your, your opponent's assertion that um, murders are committed in, in hugely disproportionate numbers by African Americans compared to their place in the population, which is a great big you know, angry statistic hanging out there that you haven't responded to. So then that's a major piece of your opponent's ammunition. What's your response to it? White men and white-on-white crime is something that has not been studied and should be studied because white men and other people within their ethnic group kill or hurt within their ethnic group. Whites hurt whites, blacks hurt blacks, etc. Latinos, Asians, etc. You hurt within your ethnic group, rape, rape within your ethnic group. We have not talked at all about the number of people harmed by white men who commit mass murders. When a white male walks into a school and kills children, it's not a white male who's done it. It's a disturbed young male. When a white man... So when we start talking about how can we save lives, this nation has now been known as a nation of mass murderers. And those mass Gloria, murderers Gloria, are 99% Gloria, white you're, men. You're, you're not, I don't feel that you're answering the question, okay. which is just this, this fact that this disproportionately high number of murders committed uh, in this nation are committed disproportionately to their place in the population by black men. Conceding that there are white mass murderers, absolutely conceded. What, what, is, what, is, what do you make of your opponent's assertion is that as a proof of the issue that that's where the crime is? Well, I would say there are black victims who want police to come and they want justice. So we, we concede that point when it comes to the fact that there is harm within the black communities. Unfortunately, what about the little old lady who lives down the street whose grandson is stopped five times because he fits the description of young and black in Brownsville? And um, Heather refers to this as the crime tax. Well, that's the tax you pay for living in a high-crime neighborhood, that you don't have the same rights, you don't get the same protections, you don't get the same courtesy as people who live in other communities because you happen to live in a a neighborhood where there are um, murders that take place, like Brownsville. So when we talk about, you know, racial bias, which is the topic here on the table, and Mark has gone back to this many times, policing is racially biased, does that mean that based on where people can live, if crime has taken place in that neighborhood, and I say this one more time, when we look at the Upper East Side or the Upper West Side and the types of crimes that take place in this neighborhood that are not reported, since police are not focused on those areas, you're not going to have the same people subjected to the same type of harassment that takes place in these other communities. Okay. Uh, We will go to questions. I want to let Heather McDonald have 30 seconds. Just briefly, mass murders... 
less than 1% of all homicides are, are mass murders. And there, too, you have racial disproportion. Blacks commit 17% of mass murders, whites 59%. I, that's not true. That, that is not true. true. As far as show me, and I have not said a crime tax means that the police can treat people unfairly. They have to use behavioral cues and meet the legal standard to make a stop. What I have said is given the vast disparities in who is committing shootings in this city, it is the tragic case that if you're a black male in New York City, a law-abiding black male, which is the vast majority of black males, you stand a much greater chance of being stopped because at some point in your life you meet a suspect description than if you're a white male. Again, the facts are these, according to victims and witnesses, blacks and Hispanics commit 98% of all shootings in New York City, whites 2%. So that means virtually never are the police being given a description of a white shooting suspect. I need to move along, and you took a minute when I gave you 30 seconds, so I'm going to give you 15 seconds. Uh, Gloria, can you do it? Yes. The New York State Attorney General's report on um, stop and frisk found that of all those stopped of black and and brown people, 70% African American, a very high percentage of Latinos, it was on white people stopped, the very small percentage of white people stopped, that they found the guns. Okay, let's go to some audience questions. Ma'am, right down here. Uh, Yeah, yeah. Uh, Mike's coming down your right. If you could do this for me, um, hold the mic about as far away from your mouth as my mic is. Um, ask a question tersely, and but tell us your name first. Thanks. And if you're with a, if you're blogging or you're a journalist, we'd appreciate kind of knowing your organization. Uh, my name is Maria. I'm not with a journalist. Okay. Uh, I'm not a journalist. Uh, my question is, and, and part of it is maybe definitional. Uh, in the beginning, there was talk about policing is racially biased as a system thing, rather than a police officer is racially biased. And I don't think anyone has talked about how the system is racially biased. I'd love uh, either team to respond. What makes policing from a system perspective versus the acts of an individual? Do you individual? really feel that, that you haven't heard that? Because I think, I, I think it's been pretty... I think that has been the assumption of the, of the debate. So I'm going to respectfully pass on it because I think that we've been there, but thank you. Um, let's see. Uh, right down in the front here. You, you were already standing up before I called on you. <laughs> I don't want anyone else to know that that technique worked. So. <laughs> Hi. Um, Hi. I, I think my question is for the, my name? You don't know my name. Sure. Just first name will do. My first name? Sure. Casilda. Okay. It's for the against the motion. Howdy. Pardon? Hello. Hi. <laughs> um, in terms of, uh, you know, I've, I've been listening in terms of um, the systematic policing, um, racially biased. I was trying to think in terms of understanding the bias, and I, I get the systematic um, part of policing and the bias. Now, when you have, when you when you think about the crimes, and I, I was trying to stay focused on the type of Ma'am, violent I, crime. I, I need you to like dive right to the question. The, thing the, that's the, a- the type of violent crime. You know, many years ago we had the. I, I need you to get to a question. Many years ago we had the wee, the weeds and crack, in yes. the in terms of crime. I guess it would be misdemeanor depending on how much we had. Now, recently in the news, we've heard of the heroin, um, um, things in the community, 
And recently, they decided. The to question stop you. recently, recently they decided that they would look into the heroin. Wait, you're, that's the that's question. A is, there you go. The question is, <laughs> do you see the bias there? How now that heroin is being taken care of because it affects a certain part of the community and not necessarily happening in the community of color. Okay, and and very often that question, if I may add to that, is is put that that in black communities, kids who are doing drugs are arrested. This is a pattern that is reported. It's not me asserting this. And in white communities during the heroin epidemic in the upper Midwest and other suburban communities, that white kids with heroin problems are offered help, that that's, the, that that's society's solution. And, that's the, and I think that that's what you're talking about. Sure. Let me, let me try to answer that. Thank you for the question. So now I am going to hearken back to my vast uh, knowledge of police work. And I was a, uh, a warrior on the crack wars. I started police work in the late 80s. And here was the driving force, though. It was violence. So nobody cares uh, if some chubby guy with long hair is smoking weed and watching cartoons and eating Twinkies in his apartment. That's not a public safety issue. His parents aren't happy, but uh, he's not causing violence in the community. When I worked in narcotics, uh, primarily focused on crack because that's what we were dealing with, it wasn't the, the idea that people were smoking crack and ruining their lives. It was the violence that was attendant, and we were responding directly to the outcry from the community. Get the dope dealers off the streets, stop the drive-by shootings, make our neighborhood safe again. All right, let me take – can I take it to uh, – all right, go ahead, Gloria. I just want – what I heard your opponent say is it's not evidence of a double standard. It's evidence of a response to the violence associated with the drug usage. And, and, and that's a powerful argument. And that fits right, into the like. issue of the system. And how you have the racial system, the racial, the bias in the in the system, in that you have different policies for different people. So when it's crack cocaine, you have a policy of arrest. When it's powder cocaine, you have a policy of counseling. And at this point, we're we're dealing with a heroin epidemic. And it's now getting so bad, it's gotten so bad that it's made the news, New York Times articles, et cetera. Let me just point to one thing. Here's where the violence comes in. You have to feed that $100, $200, $300 a day habit. So you have breaking and entering. You have burglaries. And that's why I say when we talk about crime, why is it that you only look at certain crimes? You're not looking at these types of crimes. You're not looking at the fact that crystal meth is an epidemic in rural communities, mostly white people. But you don't hear that much about it. Suburban communities, wealthy communities are dealing with this, and they're saying counseling. Now they're saying don't even arrest these people. As far as I know, possession of heroin is a crime. And yet counseling, not criminality, is the point when those people are being arrested. Heather McDonald. Well, the New York Times actually did a study this summer and found that if you're arrested as a dealer in a rural county, a white rural county, in the U.S., you have a 50% greater chance of getting sentenced to prison than you're in a big urban jurisdiction. Uh, the reason that we had the attempt for the federal government to look at crack was the Congressional Black Caucus was saying this is a crisis. Alton Walden of Queens in 1986 said this is the worst self-inflicted oppression that we've experienced since slavery. This is destroying our community. The meth penalties... We've all heard about the infamous 100 to 1 disparity between powder cocaine and crack cocaine and a, a certain amount 
of crack would yield you a five to ten year mandatory sentence. Exact same penalty structure for meth. That's what we never hear about. Meth federal uh, trafficking defendants are about 57, 58 percent white and 2 percent black. So if the crack penalties were anti-black, then the, the meth penalties are anti-white. Uh, and they're absolutely, they were absolutely identical. Now the meth penalties are much higher than they are for dealing with that. take a question from the gentleman in the, in the center there with the, your colorful sweater. And I, I think I'm, I'm sort of giving a sense of how I need these questions to be really terse and not a lot of setup, but just get my, to it. My question is to the team for the motion. Um, in a perfect world, what data would prove that uh, racial bias is going away or is gone? Uh, in other words, what would falsify your argument? Because it seems that the extent to which an argument is unfalsifiable, it's weak. I think that's a very good question. There was an, an article last year that there has been a slight increase in the number of whites arrested. When we start looking, I know Heather doesn't like disproportionality, but when we start thinking about crimes and certain crimes committed by certain people at certain times, when we start looking at the reasonableness of crime and whether or not a person is arrested for what it is they're doing, the United States has 5% of the world's population and over 20% of those incarcerated. The whole incarceration rate needs to come down. But at the same time, we need to look at are people who are committing the crimes actually getting arrested? When we start seeing in line not just these murder crimes, but all crimes across the board, whites use drugs more than blacks, yet the arrest rate for blacks is higher. That's what we're talking about. When you start talking about people getting arrested for doing the same thing other people are doing, if that starts going down, then I think that we're looking at a less, less racial bias in criminal justice and police. Really excellent question. Thank you for that. Um, I'm just the sir against the column there. Yeah. Yeah, that's you. If you could stand up, please. Thanks. Uh, yes. I'm just a citizen asking a question. Uh, this is... Um, You're not just a citizen. <laughs> <laughs> Directed towards the, the pro side of the argument. Um, getting back to, to the evidence, there's a preponderance of evidence that in tactical training, for example, police respond to, for example, a black face popping up as more of a threat than a white face popping up. Given, you know, your argument has been based on the fact that blacks commit more crimes per capita than whites. Fine. If, if we accept that, then isn't, isn't it also a, a fact that a citizen of a country should be judged equally um, when facing an officer of the law, regardless of what their ethnic or, or other definable group um, commits in terms of crimes? That does sound like a rhetorical question, but I'm <laughs> thinking um, Heather wants to answer it. But actually. did you say that we said that, that blacks no, commit pro, more crimes? No, I'm saying that oh. given, oh. if you accept the fact that like blacks statistically commit more crimes per capita than whites, if you accept that fact, which is the fact that the pro argument is making, uh, the fact Wait, which is, side? when you say the pro argument, yeah, you mean you mean this side? Yes, that's this, the against side. This, yeah, uh, we seem yes, so sorry. negative, but okay. you know. Excuse me, sorry. <laughs> yes. No, no, we get you're you. You're very now. right. You're very right. Okay. The against the the the, the okay. con side of the argument. Excuse me. Mm-hmm. Um, now we have to do it all over. <laughs> no, no, we can sort you, it out. You get my point. I, I, I can yeah, sit let, down. Let's let Heather McDonald respond because she was starting to stir on that one. Go ahead, Heather. <laughs> well, you're referring to this whole concept of implicit bias, and in fact. Studies show that there's simulator studies where you have 
people having to make split-second decisions about shoot, don't shoot. And it's true. Civilians who are not trained as police officers do respond more quickly to black faces. Police officers do not. Four studies have come out this year alone that show that if there's a bias in police shootings, it actually works in favor of blacks. That's Lois James at Washington State University who put cops in simulator situations. They took longer to decide to shoot an armed black suspect than an armed white suspect and were less likely uh, to shoot unarmed blacks and unarmed whites. The uh, Justice Department did a study of the Philadelphia Police Department that came out in March 2015 and found that black and Hispanic officers were more likely to shoot unarmed black suspects out of the misperception that they were carrying a gun than white officers. Let me but there is there, the evidence, as, as strange as it is, because it is so contrary to everything that we've been taught about policing, shows just the opposite. Mark, that, Mark Claxton to respond to that. Do you want to? Yeah, yeah just briefly. Uh, I think we're going to need a fact checker here. Yes, fact checker. Okay. But aside from that, <laughs> I think uh, um, I, I, mean, I disagree. I, I, I disagree, I, I, I disagree with what you've asserted here. To, I, I just, I've never seen any of that data that you mentioned. Is this new data? Is this quite new? Roland just came Fryer, out today? Roland Fryer this summer, Harvard economist, Ted Miller, uh, Center for Policing Equity, which is not exactly a pro-cop unit, found equity. that if there's, again, that whites face a much greater chance of fatal police shootings faced following Heather, an arrest. What, what years are the, is the... This year. This year? These okay. are all this year. Listen, and I'll Lois tell you James what. We can make it even simpler. You want to you you get oh, an idea gosh. about bias? Just think to yourself, how many times have you been walking down the street and there's a young black man that walks up walking behind you and you feel less safe or you cross the street? How many times do you decide to be at the ATM and the young black guy comes in there, or an old black guy for that matter, and you just feel a little funny? How many times has that happened to you? So less than, because these studies that you've mentioned, I've never heard of. I find them to be counterintuitive. I don't, I'm not they doubting you now, Heather, because I respect you. But for me, it's just difficult to understand that type of data. So if you, I, if you, saw, if you saw the studies, could you be persuaded on that point? Depend- I would like to see the studies I'd- because I saw an interview Heather did and none of these studies were mentioned. So if, if maybe this is something you've just Why recently learned about, but... You know, um, I want to stay with policing is racially biased, and this is not let's let's cut up Heather um, because that's not what I want it to be about. But um, this, you know, there's this pulling things out of the air. But that's but 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 here's the. But, I, but, I, I don't think it, I don't think it's fair to say that if she no, cited three or four studies prior, that are yeah, recent that she's pulling things out yes. of the air. And I, but no, I'm just that's why I said I don't want this to this be about. This is not the this no. This is not the Heather. This is not the Heather show. And I and I'm not trying to make this about <laughs> undermining Heather. That's not. The, I want to go okay. back to policing is racially biased and what that Mark just said. This has happened not just for the young black person walking to the ATM. This happens to me walk into the ATM. This happens to me being stopped. No one sees when I'm walking or driving around that I'm a professor at a college and, you know, and I write books. What they see is the color of the skin. And decisions are made based on that. So it goes back to that point of policing is racially biased. When we are talking about how people make their decisions, we have to consider, based on our history, Based on what we've learned over time, we think some people are more criminal than other people. And 
you know, and what Heather is saying is not about where um, the, the color is. It's where the crime is. Okay. I want to remind you that we are in the question and answer section but of this intelligence. I have to do this bit. I want to remind you that we are in the question and answer section of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate. I'm John Donvan, your moderator. We have four debaters, two teams of two, debating this motion. Policing is racially biased. Sir. Yep. Yep. It's you. This is, uh, hi, I'm Peter. This is for the against side, or I think yeah. you're the against side. Okay, so how do you explain you know, young African-American men being convicted for uh, nonviolent crimes at a higher rate? Does violent crimes lead to more nonviolent crimes, or is it more the police are already in the area to address violent crimes, so they address the nonviolent ones too? That's interesting. Harry Stern? Okay, so we need to titrate out. Are we talking about drug crimes? Are we talking about violent? So violent crime, nonviolent. All that stuff. So as far as all that stuff, uh, I haven't. uh, You'll have to refer me to the data that you're talking about. Okay, so you're going to pass on that question. Uh, I, I just want to mention we, we are going a little bit longer because of the snafu with the voting. We'll probably run about six or seven minutes longer than uh, we normally do. And right down in the front here, in the corner. Hi, my name's Emily. Um, I have a question about the school-to-prison pipeline for either side. Um, if well, we, can, I, can I stop you first? Is this going to be... No, no, but aside from quick, is it going to be related... To police yes. bias. Yes. Policing bias. Okay. If we take as a premise that people with prior police contact are more likely to see more police contact and more consequences for that contact in the future, how do the role of school police and the possible biases, implicit or explicit, in school policing impact this question? Anybody want to take it? I will. Harry Stern. Quick anecdote again. Okay, they asked me once if I wanted to be the uh, school police officer at Berkeley High School, and I said, let's just get this over with. Fire me. Okay? I don't, I don't think that having police in schools is uh, particularly helpful for anybody. Back when I was in high school, they had a system of what they called paraprofessionals. Uh, we called them narcs, but I think they did a, a, much, a much more effective job in bridging the gap between um, the students and the educational institution. I think having cops in schools is probably a bad idea unless they're called there to address violent crime. Gloria. Um, the the, the school-to-prison pipeline, as pointed out, means that um, in the third grade, certain tests are given. And if students do poorly on these tests because they haven't been taught well how to read and write, et cetera, then there's a decision made by certain corporations for private prisons, and most state pris- prisons have um, private prison parts to them, that they're going to be in adult prisons by the time they reach 18. And that's why they call it the school-to-prison pipeline. 
that they're going to lose interest in school because they can't read properly and that they're going to get in trouble and end up in juvenile detention and then into adult prisons. They actually base the number of beds in adult prisons on how many children are failing their tests in the third and fourth grades. We have inadequate schooling, but that's not on the table today. That's also leading to some of the criminal behavior. We have inadequate um, summer programs so that students can get in trouble when they're young and they have lots of energy. And all of these things are leading to it. We also had passed and have recently passed in Missouri a law that allows um, primary school children to be handcuffed. Where in most of the, uh, the, the country we have Um, public schools, they are going to be majority-minority schools. So you're seeing a policy in which people believe that African Americans can take it. Young people can take more criminal um, um, punishment because they're just built that way. And so that sense of the school-to-prison pipeline is also part of the system of criminalizing um, criminalizing, um, um, black and brown people so that we end up with not a sense of fairness, but a sense that they were built with latent criminality and therefore it's not racial bias, it's data. Uh, Far in in the back there. Yeah, yeah. If you could stand up. Thanks. Uh, my name is Nayaba Owende um, from the Amsterdam News. Question for the four panel. Can you talk about the correlation between bias policing and the prison industrial complex? Is a correlation? Bias policing the in the bias prison industrial complex. The bias policing in complex. the prison industrial complex. Yes. The pre- prison industrial complex. I, I just want to... I haven't heard from your sparky partner in quite a while. Well, I'm smart. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, bias, bias policing contributes... Uh, uh, to the prison industrial complex, you see, and and it kind of correlates to to what Gloria mentioned earlier about the school to prison pipeline. You see, if you prime people and you prepare them, they go through stages. If you can get them accustomed to being, you know, increased police contact, et cetera, then they become primed for criminality later on, or at least they're in somebody's database. So bias policing basically is is the methodology to get people into this prison pipeline, to criminalize perhaps large segments of our society, black and brown people. It goes hand in hand. It is one. Well, the, and wait, also I, the I, prison I, industrial heard, complex. Wait, it's what you Gloria, wait, you've had a long run. I just, we haven't heard from your opponent. I just want to give them a, a, an, an op- opportunity to jump in if you'd like to, or you can pass. I, I'm just, again, Heather we keep McDonald's. hearing about that we're arresting the wrong people or that there's somehow... Uh, Police are ignoring crime that's happening elsewhere. So we're going to, apparently you're questioning homicide statistics. What about homicide victims? Again, according to the Justice Department, Bureau of Justice Statistics, blacks die of homicide at six times the rate of whites and Hispanics combined. That, to me, is the civil rights issue that we should be most concerned about. Do you think that that data is also incorrect, that somehow the police are just not looking at all those white homicide victims or the, or the children of shootings? I, mean, I thought it was appalling. The Newton police shooting, the country went crazy because it was 20 white kids. You know, as much as one might think, or as a conservative, the police, the media is biased, the media actually ignores the overwhelming majority of black victimization. There's black kids that are being killed to no apparent concern from the media, but let 
20 white kids be gunned down, and this becomes a national crisis. So are, are you saying that there's somehow uh, white victims that the police are ignoring uh, that is also part of the faulty statistics? As someone who's lost a family member to gun violence, I don't take gun violence lightly. So when we're having this conversation, this is very real to me. But I also understand something as a civil rights attorney. I understand that there is a difference in the way people are treated. What we have on the table today, policing is racially biased. It doesn't mean that there are not black victims. There are. I know them. But what it does mean is that we have a system that's in place historically that has looked at black people based on a criminality that does not exist to the extent that which the other side is presenting it. And it's allowing police officers to extend their power well beyond what is needed. I think that it's unfair to the black community. We want to have police protection. Please understand that. But if you come to help us and end up hurting us, then we fear the police. And that concludes round two of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate where our motion is policing is racially biased. And now we move on to round three. Round three will be brief closing statements by each debater in turn. Here making his closing statement in support of the motion that policing is racially biased, Mark Claxton. He is director of public relations and political affairs for the Black Law Enforcement Alliance and is a retired New York Police Department detective. Thank you. And and thank you for for the opportunity to participate in this uh, debate. Once again, I have to remind people that we're not debating it's policing racist, is policing, anything other than racially biased. And I read the definitions earlier. It's important as you vote and as you vote yes, that you keep in mind that we're voting on police being racially biased. And I think we have to be honest about certain things. And we have to acknowledge and accept our own biases in whatever form they are. Each and every one of us has, in in this audience right now, has a bias, some sort of bias, So it would be really just counterintuitive to assume that there is no bias in this large legal structure called policing. But I I warn you, and I encourage you to avoid being swooned by a lot of, as I said, a truckload of data, a lot of 1% and 3% and 5% makes your eyes roll up in your head. I warn you not to use data as the the rationale for accepting that police is not uh, racially biased. I believe that we should use statistics and data, and Mark Twain, I believe, said this. We should use statistics and data as a drunk uses the light pole for support and not illumination. (laughs) If you are looking for the answers based on statistics and all of these conflicting data sheets and, and, and price, you're going to be really lost in the source. It's important for us. Data also, it's important, can be racially biased. It is us. We input the data into those machines. Heather spoke about Comstat being a, 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 a vitally important uh, legal tool, crime-fighting tool. Well, guess who inputs the data into the Comstat machines? Individuals who carry with them a certain bias 
along with the systemic bias of the structure of policing. Policing Claxton, is biased. I'm sorry. Vote yes. Your time is up. Thank you. The motion, policing is racially biased, and here to make his closing statement against the motion, Harry Stern, he's managing principal for the law firm, Reigns Lucia Stern, and a former Berkeley police officer. Yes, I am. So quickly, uh, I am not going to fall into the rhetorical trap of trying to argue for slave patrols or anything else that's going to get a boo or a hiss uh, from the audience as voters. But here's why statistics are important, and at the end of the day, we have to fall back at them, to them. They're not susceptible to emotional interpretations, and that's how we have to make policy decisions. I represent cops for a living. I was a cop. I love cops. I love black cops. I love women cops. I love all cops. I feel for them. I love Mark, too. The uh, I had a African-American cop in my office the other week. And uh, I work in downtown San Francisco in the financial district. He told me that he was interested in getting into finance and he was walking around and how uncomfortable it was for him because everybody was looking at him funny. And uh, that as a black guy, a big black guy, he has to be extra nice to people. I almost cried when I heard that. It's horrible. But then as we discussed it further, he said, hey, I'm a cop in Oakland, and I know why. And the why is that black people commit a disproportionate number of violent crime, and that's as reported on the fly by victims. Here's the really important thing. The real danger of getting pulled off and drawn into discussions of uh, the industrial prison complex and all that if we're not actually focused on what the reasons are for the causes of crime, we're missing the boat and we're missing a golden opportunity to actually fix things. There's no question that disparity, including racism, causes these problems. But until we're actually able to have a face-to-face real conversation about what's really going on with crime... It's going to continue. We're going to keep talking about Harry Stern, I've got to cut you off. Your time is up. Thank you very much. The motion is policing is racially biased. And here making her statement in support of the motion, her closing statement, Gloria Brown Marshall, Associate Professor of Constitutional Law at John Jay College and Civil Rights Attorney. Thank you, Harry, for voting for our side. I do vote. (laughs) Policing is racially biased. White people overall commit more crimes. The other side has pointed to certain very specific areas in which there is a spike in black crime. But overall, whites in America commit more crimes because there are more white people in this country. So if you still don't believe it, I want to tell you this, and this is from a quote from John Ehrlichman, who was an advisor to Richard Nixon in 1968. He said, and I quote, you understand what I'm saying. We knew we couldn't make it illegal to be either against the war or black. But by getting the public to associate the hippies with marijuana and blacks with heroin and then criminalizing both heavily, we could disrupt those communities, Ehrlichman said. We could arrest their leaders, raid their homes, break up their meetings and vilify them night after night on the evening news. Did we know we were lying about the drugs? Of course we did. End quote. So... Don't be so alarmed 
Not only has history, law, and practice shown that race is a part of our policing and that policing is racially biased, the media has fed to us since 1968 at the end of the civil rights movement the vilification of blacks to make it appear as though we were the only criminals out there. So that when people say blacks commit more crimes, so many folks want to believe it. And police policy is then driven by that. Funding is then given for it. And then we end up in 2017, as was pointed out, trying to figure out how we de-escalate this situation. Policing is racially biased. We can all, based on being here today, do our part about it. Thank you. Thank you. Gloria Brown Marshall. And I congratulate you on being perfectly timed. That was perfect. The motion again, policing is racially biased, and here making her closing statement against the motion, Heather McDonald, a fellow at the Manhattan Institute and author of The War on Cops. Last year, over 4,300 people were shot in Chicago. That's one person every two hours. The victims included a three-year-old boy shot on Father's Day who's now paralyzed for life, an eight-year-old girl playing outside of her grandmother's house who was shot in the lung and back, and a 71-year-old man who was watering his lawn and refused to hand over his wallet to a teen robber. Almost all the Chicago victims were black. If you believe the Black Lives Matter narrative you'd assume that a significant portion of those victims had been shot by cops. In fact, the Chicago police shot 25 people last year, virtually all armed or dangerous. That's 0.6% of the total. Virtually everything the public thinks it knows about policing from the Black Lives Matter movement is false. A police officer is 18 and a half times more likely to be killed by a black male than an unarmed black male is, to be killed, is likely to be killed by a police officer. But the policing is racist narrative is not just false, it's dangerous. Violent crime has been rising over the last two years as cops back off of proactive policing under the relentless charge that it is racist. Over 900 additional black males were murdered in 2015 compared to 2014. The toll in 2016 was likely higher still. Attacks on officers are also rising. Gun murders of police officers rose 50% last year. By all means, let us improve police tactics and communications. But the cops are in minority neighborhoods so that their inhabitants can live free from fear and violence. Proactive policing is not racially biased. It is a civil rights imperative. Vote no on the resolution. Thank you. Thank you, Heather McDonald. And that concludes round three of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate, where our motion is policing is racially biased. And now it's time to learn which side you feel has argued the best. We're going to ask you to go again to the keypads at your seat. What I'm told is that um, we think that the problem before was Wi-Fi interference in the room and that the solution, we believe, is to hold down the button for two to three seconds before you let go so that the, uh, the Wi-Fi wizards can record this correctly.
Um, I, I was just told something I don't understand. Make. Has everyone voted? No? And the reason is not indecision but technical? It looks like everybody's voted now, right? Okay. All right. We're going to have the results, I think, assuming no glitches, in about a minute and a half. While we're waiting for that, um, I want to say this. I said at the beginning that uh, this is a tough conversation to have. Uh, I think I said that. Yeah. (laughs) And I think everybody feels that and agrees to it. That said, uh, I think with the help of these four debaters, uh, the the civil uh, uh, attendance that everyone in this audience gave them, the great questions that came up that moved the thing into more interesting places, and that includes the questions that I didn't take. No disrespect meant for that. Um, I I appreciate everybody who got up and asked a question. On the whole, I think that tonight you all helped Intelligence Squared do what it is we want to do, which is bring civil discourse to tough conversations. So I want to thank all of you for the spirit in which you came up on this stage. Um, I know we have a lot of newcomers tonight. Um, we're doing this every month, um, uh, roughly every month with the summers off. I'm going to talk a little bit about what's coming up. But I want to mention first that Intelligence Squared U.S. is a nonprofit organization. We survive and be able to put these on and to grow, not just through ticket sales, but very, very significantly from the support of many individuals who help us produce these debates. Tonight, I want to give a special thanks to the Alexander J. Gerstenhaber Education Fund, which helped us tonight sponsor some student groups that are in the audience. Where are you guys? Upstairs? No? Yeah? You're in the balcony. Oh, you're allowed to come downstairs. This is, that's not the kids' table, so next time, come, come on downstairs. Um, but it's a newly created initiative on our part to help bring more school-age students to our live audience, so I want to thank, uh, again, the support that made that possible. Um, for those who would like to make a donation, you can go to our IQ2US app or visit our website, iq2us.org. Upcoming debates on February 1st, we are going to be in Washington, D.C. That night, the motion will be, give Trump a chance. Um, on February 8th we'll be back here at the Kaufman the motion will be the special U.S.-Saudi relationship has outlived its usefulness this spring our debate topics will also include charter schools Uh, we'll be talking about the universal basic income we'll be talking about the role of Walmart in U.S. society has anybody in this room ever not been in a Walmart yeah we're in New York so a lot of hands go up okay um And in June, we're going to be in San Francisco, and we're doing a debate looking at tech companies and what happens when the federal government tries to force them to yield customer data. Tickets for all of these debates are available right now through our website. And I want to let you know that um, we've been live streaming tonight, um, so that's one way to catch our debates in addition to coming here live. Uh, But you can go to our website, which is quite lively now. It's IQ2US, and you can... Uh, join these debates. You can um, watch and listen to podcasts. You can comment. The membership is free. So if you set up an account there, we sort of, uh, you know, keep an keep a watch on on who's commenting and participating. And people end up 
being able to earn uh, an IQ2 score that we give you. And so there's already a sort of a competition among people wanting to prove that they are the best debaters and the smartest people and the best listeners and that kind of thing. And it's kind of fun. So I recommend that you go there. Um, you can watch all of our de- uh, debates now on demand on our uh, apps on Roku and on Apple TV. Um, so you can pull those down. And again, as I mentioned, uh, we're a radio broadcast. You can listen to us on radio, uh, NPR and other public radio stations across the country um, and follow us on Twitter and Facebook. So we welcome your feedback and your topic ideas. So um, we are waiting for, usually by this time, I have a piece of paper in my hand and I don't have to dance. But now, here I come. No. I just want to, you want to see me dance? Believe me, you don't. <laughs> here we go. Okay. All right, I have the final results now. Again, the motion is this. Policing is racially biased, reminding you, you voted twice, once before and one after. Victory goes to the team whose numbers have moved the most upward from the first to the second vote in percentage points. Let's look at the first vote. In the first vote, 57% of you agreed with the motion that policing is racially biased. 16% were against and 27% were undecided. Those are the first results. In the second vote, the team arguing for the motion, policing is racially biased. Their first vote was 57%. Their second vote, they went up to 60%. They picked up three percentage points. That is the number to beat. The team arguing against the motion, their first vote was 16%. Their second vote was 28%. That means they went up 12%. That means the team arguing against the motion, policing is racially biased, has won this debate by our rules. Our congratulations to them. Thank you for me, John Donvan, and Intelligence Squared U.S. We'll see you next time.